Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another special episode of My Feminine Heart. We are starting off season two, January 2021 of My Feminine Heart with a fantastic story. We are joined by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. Bree, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So Bree is our January Sister of the Month, and I was supposed to interview her hopefully months ago, um, back before COVID hit, we were hoping to interview in person. And now we are joined together over the magic of Zoom because Brie, you are in um, a new location right now for you. Yeah, I'm in Newport, Rhode Island, attending the Navy War College as part of senior developmental education for the military. That is very exciting. Now, this is not your, your first um, foray into getting a higher ed, right? You have a master's degree from before too? Correct, this will be my second master's. My first was in astronautical engineering and this one is in national security and decision-making. That is really great. Now, what has this been like for you this year? Um, you know, you are off in Rhode Island, it's during COVID and your family wasn't able to join you, right? Yeah, this has been a really challenging year for me personally and for us as a family. We decided that I would move and, and attend school here on my own so that my daughter could play one more year of hockey and the kids together, they didn't have to uproot for less than a year, go to a new school and then have to move again. But all that decision was made and it was basically irrevocable before COVID hit. So now we have the challenges, it's not as easy to go back and see one another. Hockey is extremely limited and likely to be canceled. And then I moved to attend virtual classes. Uh, so all that combination of just the challenge being apart and then living a Zoom life, you know, a mile away from my college, but can't do that with my family around is, is certainly challenging this year. Yeah, I mean, so many people in the transgender community live a very isolated life. And I think the, the idea and the dream is that if you come out and if you transition, you don't feel as isolated anymore. And you are one of the most out trans advocates in, in the military and in the world. Um, and you're experiencing that right now too. Do you have any advice for our sisters at home that are separated from their friends or family or feeling a little more isolated with COVID? Well, it's about finding those ways to make and continue the connection. I actually, uh, my first day is at work presenting it myself was the week before everything shut down for COVID. So not only did I have the challenge of, you know, uh, now I'm, I'm myself fully, but now I have a management challenge of keeping track of my people, leading through change and doing that in the remote environment. But then in the middle of that, move uh, and be apart from my family. And it's been about finding Zoom calls and Facebook hangouts and other ways to stay connected. Uh, just reaching out with text messages or anything. Uh, I've found a lot of value in the ability to connect as best we can. Even then, it's hard. And you know, I don't envy anyone in this situation or that will be in this type of situation in the future, uh, but we have to make the most of it. And it's up to us to do that reaching out because other people might be just as or more isolated than we are. And they'll really appreciate that call or that video chat. I love that advice. I mean, it's so easy to just reach out to somebody and say, hey, 
thinking of you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're okay. I really appreciate your time here. I know you're very busy and especially um, so many months into Zoom fatigue and virtual learning. Um, but, you know, there are so many people who see you as this icon, you know, Brie Fram, one of the um, highest ranked trans women in the military. I mean, where, where you are and what you've accomplished is so amazing. I'd love to take you back. Um, you know, where are you from? What's your family like? What was, what was life like for growing up for Brie? So life growing up for me was in suburban Twin Cities, Minnesota. Uh, had a younger brother, younger sister. Um, I had a group of great friends that I met and built uh, through the later years of elementary school and all through high school. And my high school friends are still my best friends. In times we can travel, we get together almost every summer. I'll fly and connect with them. We may go on a trip or go to a cabin. And it's amazing because that group is incredible. Uh, I lived kind of this dual life while I was both a jock and a nerd, uh, playing three sports in high school, but spending every minute either with my friends or even more on my computer, finding the latest game and uh, staying up till 4 a.m. and wondering where did the time go and, oh, I should probably get two or three hours of sleep before school starts. Uh, but a, a good childhood uh, with, some, with some great friends uh, that I still call my best friends to this day. That's amazing. What a blessing to have that still. Now for you growing up, did you have any inkling that one day you might be Brie? There was something I knew about myself that was different from an early age. Uh, when I was three and four, or maybe it was four and five, I was Wonder Woman for Halloween, along with my sister. Great picture of the two of us as in our Wonder Woman onesie pajamas uh, around, around Halloween. But I didn't know what it was. Uh, I didn't know what that meant for me. Uh, I knew I had a fondness or an attraction for, for women's clothes. Uh, when I was somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10, my parents caught me in, in my mom's things, sent me to a psychiatrist who, after one session, basically told them, eh, he's normal enough, uh, which, as I said, would be a fabulous uh, title for my autobiography if I ever write it someday. Uh, oh, and you prepared it was kind of forgotten uh, how, uh, you know, what this meant, you know, for my parents in a corner, whatever, put it away. For me, it just, it continued on and nothing changed. I still had that sense that something was different, but it wasn't identity at the time. I didn't know enough about it and how to relate that, but I knew it was a part of me that was gonna stick around. So if you didn't think it was part of identity, um, what did you think it could have been? Well, at, at that age, especially getting into my teenage years or even into the early 20s, you think, is this just sexual? Is this a fetish? What, what is this? Because, well, let's be honest, at that age, a lot of things are, and we, we think about that a lot. So I didn't know what, what it meant for me in terms of the, the wider picture. Um, but because I knew it was something important, I knew it wasn't going anywhere, and I was lucky enough to grow up in the same era that the internet grew up, and I could do research, I could reach out, I could go to the library. I remember as a kid finding books that were out there and trying to find what libraries have these books, and going to the college library to try and find things that you know wasn't online in 1995 or six when I finally got a car and could go 
go uh, away further and, and get these resources. Were there any resources for you growing up um, or later in your life that you really connected with? There were things uh, over time that, that made a point. I don't recall anything from really early on as this really made an impact. It was more just the collection of sources saying, again, this is normal to a degree. You're not alone. There are other people out there like you, and that helps. That's really important. Uh, later on down the road as I got older, um, one of the books that stuck with me uh, was My Husband Betty. Uh, I thought at the time, uh, when I considered myself uh, to be a cross-dresser or gender fluid, that really connected. And that also helped explain some things to others. Uh, I remember sharing that both with my wife and, and with my mother later on. Uh, but there are other people who I read their stories, followed their blogs, and they inspired me as to what might be possible. Uh, Kimberly Huddle, who wrote a blog about traveling while trans and presenting as herself uh, away from home and on the road uh, was fantastic to say, hey, maybe that could be me someday. That's amazing. And you know, you are such a beautiful speaker. I've written, I've read what you've written. I've listened to you speak. Um, the idea of you writing an autobiography called Normal Enough, I just, I adore that and I can't wait to get my hands on it because I know you have to do that one day. But you actually, you do have a written project coming up, don't you? I do. Uh, I've got a book coming out uh, later this year, hopefully late winter, early spring from NYU Press with my co-author Mel Sheridan from, the, from Hamlin University. Uh, we've written a history of transgender service in the military plus a collection of stories from people that have served in the past or are currently serving today. So we're really excited for that to come out and help get some of these stories and kind of into both the academic and the popular literature uh, as something that's really accessible to see why people serve, see that it's for the same reason as anyone else, see some of the challenges they faced, how they overcome it, and how especially important today, how coming out and being themselves makes them a better soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman, and now, like me, space professional. Uh, so it's awesome to be able to share those stories uh, because there are people around the world every day doing amazing things for the US military that just happen to be trans. That's fantastic. We have so many uh, club members and sisters in our audience who are um, military personnel and are veterans. And I thank all of them you know, for their service. I thank you. And I'm so excited to read this military history. Um, when I heard you speak, you used this great percentage um, that I loved. And it's, you know, when people talk about, you know, trans in the military, that concern and question always comes up of, well, how much will it cost us to support them medically in the military? And I think we spend far more in another area, don't we? There are whole sorts of different areas where we spend far more. The, the common uh, off-the-cuff quip is that we spend about 30 times as much annually on erectile dysfunction medication as we do to treat the entire population of transgender patients. Uh, but if you look just as a fraction of the Department of Defense's budget, it's something like 0.00004% of the military budget is what it would take 
to treat the entire population of, of trans folks. Uh, but really, it's, it's not about what the total cost is. It's about the fact that the military has a compact with us. And that compact with all service members is that we are going to receive all medically necessary care to make us the most effective we can be and get us back to the battlefield if we're in a shape where we can't be on the battlefield. And that's what this is. This is about making us better. This is about giving us the same level of care that our cisgender counterparts receive so that we can be the most effective, ready force we can be for the military. Bree, how are you better now that you have transitioned? It's in, almost, I know that's a big question in your specifically in your service as, as an officer in the military. It's almost countless in the ways I think having to look inside myself to find some of these things and to really see how does it affect me as a leader that has made me better. And there are a number of different areas. One, the, the value of authenticity. The ability to be yourself enables a deeper level of connection with other people. And I tell a, a story about Captain Olivia Stellick, who is an army physical therapist. Now she transitioned and then almost immediately deployed to Afghanistan. And she had soldiers telling her, not only did they love her as a physical therapist, but they would tell her things that they never told her before she transitioned. And she was able to use what they told her because they connected with her at that authentic level to help get them back to the battlefield faster. And so that authenticity that enables connection is really valuable to a leader in the military to be able to enhance unit effectiveness, not just yourself. Uh, there's also the fact that it gives a different perspective. And one of the things we need to do as we face this world of uh, violent, uncertain, complex, adaptive problems is we need to be able to take multiple perspectives to see how do we best attack this? How, it's not just a simple solution that I can break down into parts. This is something where I have to look at it from side A, side B, through side X. And if I'm able to shift my perspective and see it from multiple ways, that's value added. And let me tell you, transition for people is about seeing things from different perspectives. Uh, I would guess that just about anyone would have examples of how they see things differently. Even just the simple fact of walking into a meeting room at the Pentagon, never before would I have done this and noticed I'm the only non-old white man in this room. Uh, and, and seeing things that you may not have in another way. And those are just a few of the ways in which I think transition has made me a better and more effective leader within the military and in general. Wow. Now, what is it that inspired you to join the military? So, after college, I was looking for jobs in the civilian world as, as an engineer, and they weren't exciting me. It was about being a details person on this tiny little subsystem uh, on, a, on a spacecraft, and that just wasn't it. But between that and September 11th happening right after I, I got out of school and graduating in 2001, I needed to give back. I needed to be part of something bigger than myself. And the military offered that perfect opportunity. 
yeah, there was the side bonus that maybe I could become an astronaut because that was a path that was was open to me at the time too. But it allowed me to look at the big picture, to do some jobs with a much greater level of responsibility and leadership that I might have had otherwise. But really, it was the chance to serve. It was the chance to give back. Um, about four or five days after September 11th, I was driving up to see uh, my my now wife, and she was living in Duluth, Minnesota. It was about a two-hour drive away. And I saw a flag hanging down from an overpass uh, over the highway. And I'd driven that countless times before, never seen that. And I just broke down crying. And by the time I got to her, I walked into the door and said, I'm going to join the Air Force. And, and that was it. That was uh, almost 20 years now, uh, just coming up on 18 years of service for me. Wow. Now, how long had you been when, with your wife when you made that declaration? I, it hadn't been long. Uh, we met, well, just over a year. Uh, we, we met in March of 2000. So she's still my girlfriend at the time. But um, you said I love you pretty early on. You were already fairly committed at that point, right? Oh, we were, we were very much committed. Uh, she says, and she's got the better memory than I do, that I, I told her I loved her just about the third week uh, we were dating. And it also happened to be when I came out to her as, you know, what now I would say I came out to her as trans. At the time it was, I'm kind of coming out to you with something that I don't know what it is, but it's important and I have to tell you about it because I'm falling in love with you, I see a future for us, and if I don't tell you now, and it comes up later, that could be an issue between us. And I don't want to get to that point. What did it mean to her when you came out as you did? How did she handle that? I think she was more shocked with the fact that I told her that I was falling in love with her than, than that point of coming out to her. She had been coming off a relatively long-term relationship and it wasn't really what she was expecting to get into another one uh, right off the bat like that. So she just kind of rolled with it. It was no big deal at the time. And since then, yes, it's been a roller coaster. There have been highs and lows. There have been incredibly challenging emotional times uh, they were so trying and heartbreaking, and there's been highs too. But at that point, it was just like, all right, again, you're normal enough, and I kind of like you too, so let's see where this goes. <laughs> now, so um, at this point in your life, you know, you'd graduated from college, you hadn't quite figured out your identity or that it was an identity issue, and you're going into the military, which was still in even for LGB, don't ask, don't tell. So what was that like for you, kind of trying to figure out where you fit in the world and then going right into the military where that was not discussed at all? Yeah, that is, it's almost like a second closet to get in and a more dangerous one. Because for those years in the military, if a word were to get out and make it to the wrong, wrong set of ears, I, had, I could lose my career over something that had absolutely nothing to do with my ability to serve. Uh, so it led to some potentially fraught moments. Uh, it may have you know, prevented me from having that introspective look 
for much longer than it eventually did uh, because there's just that second layer that holds you back. Um, and the closet is just not a great place to be. Having that layer out there prevents you from reaching your full potential. So now being able to be open uh, really allows someone to take the mental energy they had to, or they used to use to edit their words or their actions and dedicate it to the mission or dedicate it to taking care of people. So it's one more reason why we absolutely shouldn't have rules that force people to conform for reasons that don't have anything to do with mission accomplishment. It allows them to bring their full self to work and to dedicate the maximum amount of energy possible to getting done what needs to get accomplished. Totally agree. Now, when did you start to realize that um, this was a little more than, than what you had thought, that you, you had an identity issue or, 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 or development to deal with? It was around my 30th birthday uh, that you, I started to have these questions to myself of, is this more? What does it mean? And while I was traveling for work, what we like to call uh, a TDY, um, I was in the, the Bay Area in California, and for my 30th birthday present to myself, I took myself to a makeover service. Uh, and it was fascinating. It was nerve-wracking at the same time. But that first look in the mirror of, well, yeah, that could be me. Maybe this is something more. This is something more to explore. But it, was, it really was just cracking the door open. It would be several more years uh, before I ventured out in, in public as, as myself, uh, before having some difficult conversations with my wife about what does this mean as, as identity? Uh, is it something you know, that does leave the house uh, that becomes part of me? But it got to that point in my mid-30s where both of us knew, yeah, I needed to be out. I needed to make friends. I needed to have a social outlet. Uh, that, that meant something more to me. But even then, I thought of myself as, as mentioned earlier, a cross-dresser or gender fluid, and it would be several more years uh, around the time I was 40 and had to face some of these issues with the military and do a lot of introspection in a very short time-sensitive period uh, where there was a lot of now or never pressure. That was the moment uh, that got me to actually say, yeah, I, I think I need to transition. This is the moment, this is the time where it's right. It's right for me. Now, for people who have heard you speak, they may have seen interviews with your wife, Peg. Now she is um, a tremendous advocate for, for spouses uh, and, and speaks publicly. When you first told her, she didn't really know what that meant or what that would become through your 20s and then you know around the time that you were having this makeover what was it like for your wife um did she see you dress was she okay with the dressing how you know at, at some point you started to have children what was that like with them so it, it certainly wasn't easy for peg as i mentioned it, it was a bit of a, a roller coaster ride and she is a fabulous advocate and, and speaker on these things. Uh, encourage anyone who gets the chance to listen to her. Uh, but there were times where it was difficult, where seeing me was, was painful or challenging. 
the first time I wore wore a wig to see that it was like, oh, I was okay with everything except the hair or 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 this or that. So there were always little aspects that were difficult. The one thing we had the benefit of was time. Um, even to her though, it probably felt like not nearly enough time. It never was enough time. And she was always worried that, you know, what if we do get to that bridge where I transition? What would that be like? What would that mean for us? Because it's not just my transition. It's hers in a way too, because society's perception of her changes all of a sudden. Whether or not uh, it sees her as married to a trans woman, it sees her in a lesbian relationship. Uh, and what, though her sexuality didn't change, nothing about her changed, the way the world perceives her has changed. So the challenges of, of living in the closet, dealing with the fear of me being found out, uh, the what does this mean as I transition or not, that's a lot to deal with. And I'm so lucky to have had her along this journey, but I'm also amazed you know, she could stick by me through this. And the fact that over the course of me coming out, she's the one that lost friends and family, not me. Um, I'm so thankful for what she's persevered through to stick by me because she loves me. It's, it's a testament to an amazing relationship and I'm so lucky to have her. Yeah. And that part of your story is so heartbreaking that she had lost so many people who were important to her and her life just for choosing to, to be with you and to love you. Yeah, it's, it's really sad that when I came out for the first time as trans on the day the military dropped the ban, I received nothing but love, not just from friends, family, but my work colleagues. Whereas she all of a sudden had people that wouldn't speak to her anymore, uh, including for a year, almost a year of her parents. And that's a, how, why, why would you cut this person out of your life solely for who she loves and who she's chosen to stick with because we have this relationship, we have some a life we built together. Uh, so to see her go through all that pain, even at a time where I was almost free and welcomed, uh, was really difficult to get through. How are things for her now? Has she been able to reconnect any of those lost relationships? Things are better. Uh, with parents, it's great. Uh, things have, have definitely improved. Uh, and, and a few friends and an extended family may have, have rebonded a few ties, but there are people that are, are lost for good. And though she can look at it in one way and say, well, yeah, maybe they shouldn't have been in my life anyways, it still hurts. And it's still difficult to have that of, yeah, I thought you were this fabulous friend and then you were just gone. So those things linger, they hurt. Uh, you know, time heals a little, uh, but it won't fix everything. What is your advice for anybody for that phase of their life where they you know, maybe have come out in the home but haven't come out out of the home and are trying to go through that roller coaster with their spouse? That's a difficult question because it depends so much on the context. If you're talking about with a spouse, you know, what do they know? Uh, and, and what is the relationship like? How do the two of you communicate together? 
Um, but in, in that internal dynamic, I always just advocate honesty to the maximum extent possible. And it's challenging because we often don't even know ourselves as well as we think. And if we have to communicate our confusion, that's tough because now you're just sharing something and you can't say, I know exactly what's going on or I know where I'm going to be. And that was one of the issues with Peg and I, that I sort of shared my confusion over the many years of, I think this is where I am right now. I can't guarantee where I'm going to be in five years. Uh, but honesty to the maximum extent, you know yourself. Share that. It's important. When coming out to, to friends and family and, and wider audiences, I think sharing the why of it is really important. That it makes you a better person. That it allows you to do A, B, and C, which is important. Uh, and, and again, context matters. But if you have that, this is why, so that I can be myself, so that I can fully relate to the world in a way that's honest and authentic, uh, that matters. But it's about finding that way to connect um, with kids. It's all about telling them that you love them and making sure they understand that it doesn't change anything about that loving relationship. Um, but to each person, it's going to be different. And no one can guide your story better than you because your context is important for your story. Now, what about your children? You were kind of trapped inside the home, you know, not being able to go out and being exposed because of your um, career in the military. So did your children see Brie growing up? When did they become aware of Brie? So we did keep, keep that out of my oldest life for a little while uh, because at the time, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. Uh, and, and what does it mean? And again, it was answering the question of why. Why share it, why share it now with, with my oldest? Uh, but we told her when, I, her when she was about six, and just because I was becoming very much more public, it was important she know she was gonna find out sooner or later. So let's do it on, on our terms. And it really was a in one ear, out the other for her. She could have cared less. Uh, after we told her uh, that at the time, you know, just like you, daddy likes to dress up like a princess sometimes. Uh, it was, okay, whatever, can I go back to playing Minecraft on my computer now? Uh, and my youngest, uh, since she was four years younger, it was really just part of her life for the whole time. Uh, and, and it's been something she's always known. But again, we had to tell them again when it was time for me to transition. And we did that with love. We explained the why of it, why it's important, and made sure they knew all along that it wasn't gonna change how I related to them and how I would take care of them as a parent, how I would always love and support them. So there are some challenges uh, still. Uh, it's not easy for them, but they are fantastic. They even for a while became each other's pronoun police. So one would use the wrong pronouns, uh, say he and the other would go woo, 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 woo. And, and they'd correct one another. Uh, so it was, it's great. Uh, they are wonderful and, and I couldn't be luckier with them either. That's great. Now, um, so many of our audience and our sisters are 
um, veterans and military personnel, but there is an audience that we have that are not as tuned in to the significance of um, trans rights and awareness in the military. And I know that had a big impact on when and why you crossed that threshold and, and transitioned. Would you mind sharing a little bit of what this experience has been like for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll try and sum that up uh, in a brief manner that a lot of my advocacy work uh, not only has been driven by the fact that it's, it's important, it's relevant, it's important to me, but through a sense of responsibility. Because by the time it came to have open service in the first place in 2016, I was one of the more senior officers uh, that happened to be trans. And we have this, have several different ethos in the military, but not only do we leave no one behind, but the goal is often to make life better for those that follow us. And so there's that sense of responsibility as a senior leader that I need to take up the charge because if not me, then who? Who's gonna do that? Who has the access that I might have as a senior officer to some of the people that are making decisions? It's a lot easier for me as a major at the time and a lieutenant colonel now to get access to the policymakers and to be able to relate to them than it is for the young sergeant or private uh, serving in, uh, in South Carolina in an infantry unit. It's a very different set of circumstances. So there's a lot of responsibility in leading some of these efforts, being able to reach the people, and then being able to frame our stories in a way that gives them impact and make senior leaders understand why trans service is so valuable. Wow. So what happened um, once you transitioned in your career? So transition for me has been a, a great experience. We already talked about the fact that it was eye-opening. It made me a better leader, uh, but it was almost a non-event in a way, or it was nothing but a positive. That first uh, day I was there in the office, we, we threw a little party, uh, got my team together, uh, and, and they were awesome. Uh, so great to have the support of, of the people I've worked with. I have had nothing but uh, help from all the leaders that I've worked for. Uh, so transition's been a, a fabulous experience for me. And now the ability to be, be authentic, to connect on a different level, um, nothing but goodness and nothing but value there. Now, what held you back from transitioning? I, I just didn't know that it was right for me. Uh, I've used the analogy that transition is a little like having a heart condition or high cholesterol, where for some of us, uh, you don't need to treat that. You just live with it. But you may reach a point where you have a cholesterol test and your doctor says, hey, you know what? Now we're going to put you on, on this medication because it, it's time you've reached a point. And some people reach that point in terms of transition and understanding themselves before they can even talk. Some of us reach it uh, as teenagers or in midlife or later in life. And some of us never get to that point. But sometimes you do. Uh, for me, though, there was the catalyst which was a point at which 
the policy that President Trump was putting in place to ban transgender people from the military, there was a 30-day window in which after the Supreme Court said, it's okay, you can put that policy in place while the court cases that are challenging it go through the system. And if you don't have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria prior to April 12, 2019, any future possibility of transition is closed to you. Any future medical care related to that is closed to you. So I had a month basically to figure it all out, to look into the crystal ball and say, will I do this in the future? Do I need that diagnosis on my record? And I had always fought against it because in the criteria for diagnosing gender dysphoria, not only is there this list of a few things you have to match about, you know, you see yourself as, as the opposite sex or desire some of the traits of what's referred to as the opposite sex, uh, you also have to have clinically significant distress. And I did not want anything on my record that said I had clinically significant distress because that is so wide open for interpretation. And I am not broken. I am not fragile. That was the furthest thing from the truth. But I had to kind of suck it up, as it were, and accept that diagnosis in order to protect my future. But in that introspection, in, in trying to figure out was I willing to accept that, I, I reached a point where I got to, yeah, it's time. This, this is me. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C., and I had to attend a dinner party, basically, at uh, Andrews Air Force Base with a number of uh, senior generals and representatives from across the government trying to solve this problem that we have of how to deal with small unmanned aerial vehicles, drones as we call them. Uh, how do we protect ourselves from those in commercial and military spaces? And as I was getting ready to go to this meeting that night, um, I was getting dressed and I went to the mirror and I put a sport coat on and I looked in the mirror and I just said, this isn't me anymore. This isn't who I am. This isn't who I want to be. I wouldn't choose this. Because as I had been you know, gender fluid for so long, I almost had that, well, who am I going to show to the world today? But I had reached that point where I don't want, I will never willingly choose this presentation anymore. It's not who I am. So it was that moment that crystallized everything and I moved forward, I got the diagnosis, and a few months later, I began my transition. It's incredible to think the pressure that you were under to make that decision, considering that, you know, for um, so many, if they want to transition, they have to live a year full time as their authentic selves before they can do hormones and surgery and things like that. So that you'd have that window. I, I know you had lived for many years, you know, as gender fluid and debating, you know, do you transition or do you not? For so many others who weren't there yet, I can't imagine having been put under that, that pressure before they were ready. Yeah, and I was on that night. I was on fire and, and did a lot of good work that night, even though I had to 
throw on the coats and, and, and make it happen. Uh, but you bring up an interesting aspect about the gatekeeping that's done in the medical community to prevent people from accessing needed care. Because, yeah, you, you don't know yourself. You haven't figured yourself out. Go do this for a year and then we'll think about it. I mean, that's just nonsense. Uh, to have to force people to do that. Uh, and I think standards are changing, so that's becoming less and less of a thing these days. But gatekeeping is still very real in the medical community. And it's a challenge to a lot of our military trans folks as well, uh, not just to get past that gatekeeping, but to get past some of the stigma that may be out there still uh, to say you're fragile or something else because you're trans. And if you go to the doctor and say, doctor, I, I broke my arm, can you help me treat it? And they're like, whoa, let's treat your trans first. Uh, no, I have a broken arm, please fix that. Um, so it's this sore thumb that sticks out so often in dealing with people. Uh, and we have to move past that. We have to, that's why we tell our stories. That's why we wanna put these positive examples out there to change the stereotypes, to make that connection on a one-by-one -one or small group basis so we can change that perception. And for the folks after us, they don't have to deal with that gatekeeping. They don't have to deal with that stigma. Uh, so that's really why we tell our stories. Yeah, let's help. You know, it's it's been through these interviews I've done this year that I've really come to realize how hard it must be to live full time for that year when you don't have the benefits of hormones and surgery. And, you know, when you are presenting physically as a man and trying to then present as a woman, um, without any of that added extra help, it's it's kind of like when you're an awkward pubescent teenager. Um, and I've you know I've, I've interviewed couples that have talked about their fear because you know you're not going to blend in as well you know without those without that added help. Um, you know, for you, you are such a tremendous advocate. What do you see coming up in the future? I mean, what do the next few weeks for you look like with the inauguration? What are you seeing coming down the pike for the advocacy you're working on and, and what you see coming through for the trans community? Well, I appreciate you saying that because I often feel like an awkward teenager. I don't think that's ever gone away or ever will go away. Uh, oh, I think you're adorable. <laughs> But I see amazing things ahead. I am so excited to get back to a policy of open service. Uh, President-elect Biden has said that on day one, uh, he'll issue an executive order that will reverse the trans ban, or at least order the Department of Defense to change its policies back to open service. So I am incredibly optimistic. I'm positive about making change. And once we're back to that policy within the military, to then be able to improve it. Any new policy that comes out in, in the military and anyone who served this knows isn't right, right off the bat. There are rough edges. We have to smooth those out. We have to make it better, again, so that the next people going through this don't have to worry about some of the administrative burden or the damage to their careers that may occur based on just how the policy was written or interpreted. We can make it better. So I am so hopeful for that ability and that this then becomes kind of the forefront of a wider advancement for LGBT and civil rights, uh, rights for minorities and equal access, diversity and inclusion initiatives that can come out of this uh, are all fantastic. And my hope that by the end of the, the next four years, whether or not we put a legislative solution in place to enshrine equal opportunity to serve in law, 
Regardless of that, that with four more years of open and honorable service, the thought of a military, of our military, without transgender people in it is just as unconscionable as thinking of our military without people of color, without women, or without lesbians, gays, and bisexuals. Because the same arguments in the past that were thrown at them as to why they couldn't serve are the same arguments that have thrown against trans people. And every day we prove just how fallacious those arguments are by our service and our ability to get the job done. I know that you are um, highly involved with Sparta. Uh, what do you recommend in, that people do if they are experiencing any discrimination or they are needing any extra support being trans in the military? Is Sparta an organization they can go to? Uh, absolutely, Sparta is here for you. Uh, Sparta is the only advocacy organization and support group that solely represents transgender service members. Uh, we have approximately 1,100 members at the moment. We educate and advocate on their behalf. We provide a space and a group in which they can explore the policy, explore who they are and how to reach their goals with like-minded individuals and kind of provide that back channel uh, that they may not feel comfortable reaching out within their chain of command or other organizations to get the help they need and to facilitate those connections. But just as importantly, to be their face, to be their voice, to reach out to the policymakers, both on Capitol Hill, inside the Pentagon, and elsewhere, to say, look at these people. They are doing incredible things every day, despite the challenges that they face. They are not only overcoming those, but they're still succeeding at getting the job done. So uh, couldn't say enough good things about Sparta as an organization and what we've been able to do to help keep the community together and help drive the mission forward. That's wonderful. Now, what do you see on the horizon for you in the next year, five years, 10 years? What does the future look like for Brie and for your family? Well, that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that. I've, I've always wondered, what am I going to be when I grow up? And I haven't found the answer, or at least the answer changes every few years. Right now, I'm just on pins and needles waiting to find out what my next assignment is going to be. Am I going to go back to the Pentagon? Uh, because in just a few weeks here, I recommission into the Space Force from the Air Force, which is a super exciting opportunity to be part of the culture building of a new service. That hasn't happened very often in our, in our history, and the last time was over 70 years ago. So the chance to build something new, the chance to build a 21st century service that really embodies some of these goals of diversity and inclusion, bringing in all those perspectives in order to be technically competent and capable on the battlefield is an awesome chance. And I'd love to do that on the staff in the, in the Pentagon, or perhaps I head out to Los Angeles and go back to my roots and work to design our, our next generation of, of satellites in one form or another, um, because that's a great opportunity too. But I don't know, I'll find out uh, shortly where the next one is. And from there, it's, it's on to bigger and better opportunities, uh, new command assignments down the road, and who knows where I end up. Uh, I've got quite a few years of military service ahead of me, and then the, few, the crystal ball's cloudy on that one. The, the possibilities are just about endless. Do you still dream of going into space? 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, that dream, even though I, I never was able to become a, a military astronaut, is still there. And I guarantee at some point I will buy myself a ticket, if not for an orbital flight, which I really hope, at least a suborbital hop. Because by the time I'm in my late 50s, early 60s, I would hope that's well within my ability to afford as the kind of trip of a lifetime uh, opportunity. So won't miss it. Now, um, channeling kind of your geek side, uh, what can you tell us? Are there any special um, cosmological events coming up that we should be looking for in the skies in 2021? <laughs> I have not been a great astronomer uh, in the sky. I've, I've always thought it's awesome to see the International Space Station going at, going overhead or, or be out in, in a meteor shower. Uh, those phenomena are incredible and I definitely encourage people to take an interest in the night sky and you know understanding the position of the planets and why the stars move, why we have seasons, just the general nature of the solar system. Um, my focus has always just been on that, oh, how cool is exploration? How amazing would it be to be the one that's the first footprints on Mars? or to explore the outer reaches of the solar system, or even better yet, to push beyond. Where is humanity's future? Because it is in the stars. You know, being a one planet species is dangerous. We know life ending extinction level events occur on this planet every so often. And if we're not ready for it, if we haven't expanded beyond, uh, that's dangerous for us. So go out there. Go explore, because not only is it cool, it's vital to the long-term survival of our species. I know the first question my husband is going to ask after this interview is, um, Brie, are you a Star Trek fan? I am a total Trekkie. Uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine in particular. Uh, actually, I became an astronautical engineer because a friend of mine, when I was about eight or nine, literally forced me to watch an episode of, of Next Generation with him. And from that point on, I wanted to be Geordie. I wanted to make the warp engines go. Uh, so that has stuck with me. Uh, I, I turned that into a career, haven't looked back. I, you know, I put the dinosaurs that I was interested in at the time aside, and it was full steam ahead on, on space, or I should probably say full nuclear propulsion, uh, ideally ahead. Um, I still have like an eighth grade paper I wrote on the future of the space station. Uh, it's a passion for me about how we make this happen, how we make it a reality, and how we bring some of it back down to earth. Because uh, it's amazing. People don't think about the military as the providers of so many of these space-based capabilities like GPS that we just can't live without. And it's so much more than that. Uh, so it's, it's awesome to be a part of it. Now, speaking to the next generation, um, as children are growing and they hear you speak so passionately um, about astronautics, how would you recommend they pursue a career in STEM, STEM in the military, or if they want to follow more closely into your field and someday venture into space? Yeah, I would never encourage anyone to do anything but follow their passion. But if your passion is anywhere in the STEM fields, please go for it, focus on that. No matter who you are or what you think you can be, we need you. Not just in the military, but in NASA and all the commercial companies like SpaceX or Blue Origin that are doing these amazing things and really pushing the frontiers. We need knowledgeable people. And even if it's, you're just talking about an undergraduate engineering degree, 
that does nothing more than teach you how to think, how to get you to critically appraise things, understand what a fact is, and how to look at that, how to use it, uh, and it prepares you for just about anything. Uh, your path can go just about any direction with an engineering degree go for it. Or if you're really into the, the science aspect, the math piece, do it. We need you. You are going to continue to drive progress for humanity long into the future. And I shudder in amazement at the stuff that you're going to come up with. It's so exciting. It's so exciting to think about. And before I let you go, um, I realized I forgot asking you about one of my favorite stories of yours because you were so passionate about joining the military for 9-11, but you know, other people might, might see you and think, well, she's from a long line of, of soldiers and veterans and you are not the first person in your family to serve. Um, so that you started off, you know, in college and then going into the civilian job force or looking for a job um, in the civilian field is amazing. What was it like coming from, you know, a military family and then coming out to them? So there's there's been military service in my family, but we definitely were not a military family. Uh, my grandfathers both served in World War II but we never really had much discussion about it. The military wasn't a part of my life. Uh, so it was a bit of a detour, and I'm the only one in my generation, in my family, uh, that's a member of the military, uh, or even the generation between us. My dad briefly was in the National Guard, primarily as a way to avoid having to go to Vietnam. Uh, but my grandfather's service really does mean a lot to me. They both did amazing things. One, as a first lieutenant signal officer in the army, uh, captured an entire German company and an entire town with four men through deception and convinced them to surrender to him. Awesome. Uh, and has the, the German officer's sword as a, as a token, which hangs above my dad's office. Uh, really cool. Uh, but my other grandfather, was a, a German Jew that escaped Germany in the 30s. So amazing that he got out of the country at the time, but even more so that he then, as soon as he was able, enlisted in the US military, got sent back to Europe, became the youngest first sergeant in the European theater of operations as a tanker, got personally yelled at by Patton to get his goddamn tanks moving faster and ripped the armor off of them that they had put on, on the sides to, to give themselves a little bit better chance of survivability. But then he got to liberate concentration camps. So how amazing to go from getting out of Germany to getting back there and, and working on that liberation attempt. So uh, an incredible story, an incredible legacy to live up to because he's someone who saw evil and faced it down. And uh, last year, right as the ban was going into place, uh, I was traveling back to Minnesota to see him and to see my grandmother because we were having a 95th and 90th birthday party for them. The timing couldn't have been crazier because I'm doing a number of interviews, talking about the band going into place, trying to work some advocacy efforts on Capitol Hill uh, to figure out how can we uh, combat this. But I get home, I do an interview as soon as I reach my parents' house and then my mom pulls me aside and says, 
your grandfather's been moved to the hospice. I think you need to go, uh, go see him pretty soon. And I say, I'm going right now. And she says, okay, let's go. Uh, and I get there and he's just kind of in this drug induced haze uh, and, and just laying back in his bed. But I grab his hand, he opens his eyes, he looks at me, uh, but then he falls back into the haze and I sit by his bedside for a while. Uh, and when it's time to go, uh, I grab his hand again and he opens up and he comes out of it just enough to look at me and say, keep doing what you're doing. Because he knew my story. He knew what I was doing. He was so proud of me every time I got promoted. But, wow, a captain. Whoa, a major. And, and then to I'll work on the advocacy bit, he got it. He knew what was wrong when he saw it. And to give me that as his final words, I mean, it chokes me up to this day uh, to say that he knew, he supported me. It was, it was impressive and it was important. And if his generation could get it, so can ours. So can the next generation. We can make this better. We can face down injustice and we can make the better world a better place for those that follow us. Brie, I love your storytelling. I, you know, I don't ever get through one of these interviews without crying. <laughs> of all, you have so many incredible stories and so many we have not even hit upon um, today, but I cannot thank you enough for, for sharing that. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> all right, one last question and I'm gonna let you go. Is there any advice you wish someone had given you that would have made a difference that you'd like to pass on to somebody else? You know, maybe it's surprising, but no, I don't. I've gone through all these things that I went through uh, and I don't look back at it and say, boy, I wish I had done something different uh, because I was myself. I followed my path. Uh, and when I got to the points where I needed to move in a different direction to be who I was, I did. Uh, and yeah, I, you may say, I've got a lot of self-confidence. I've got a lot of belief in myself and a lot of belief that the future can be better for all of us. But there's no one moment I can look back at and say, boy, I wish someone had told me just do that because I kind of did. So if I had to offer it to someone else, you know, believe in yourself. I did, and it's worked out phenomenally. So um, couldn't be happier. Uh, really excited for what the future may hold, particularly once we can see one another and give each other some hugs. Well, Bree, thank you so much for your time. I am so excited for you to wrap up this degree so that you can rejoin your family and to see all the exciting things on the horizon for you in 2021. I think it's gonna be an incredible year for you, your family and career, and I'm excited to um, watch it unfold. Thank you so very much for all of your, your time and your support of the community, um, those who serve and those who have served and those who are, who are civilian. Uh, you are making a tremendous difference in the world, and I so appreciate all of your efforts in doing so. Thank you, Brie. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. It's a, a pleasure talking with you as well. And uh, if there's anything I can do for folks, uh, I'm available. Find me. My contact info is certainly out there. Thank you, Bree. Have a good one. You too. Never miss a single podcast by signing up for our newsletter at myfeminineheart.com.